Good morning. It's good to see you this morning as we continue in our series rooted through the book of Colossians. I need to uh, remind you on May 13th, that's a Saturday at 1130, we will celebrate Wayne Walter's life. I know many of you have been asking about when that is, so that'll be Saturday the 13th at 1130 here at the church. And I know they'll be reaching out for people to help with uh, lunch and afterwards to uh, provide and to serve. So if you would be willing to do that, you can be proactive and call the church office. That would be wonderful. Appreciate you being willing to do that. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, help us to recognize our life in you. As we've been singing, you are holy challenge for us to be more like Jesus Christ. I pray that nothing will distract from the words of your word. Lord, that we would be challenged in our relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I know we have some golfers here. I have a set of clubs somewhere that doesn't make me a golfer. In fact, I always wondered why people would invite me to go golfing with them. And then I realized what it is. They knew they wouldn't come in last. If we had a foursome, they would either be first, second, or third if I was golfing with them. And, but believe it or not, I mean, I would golf once a year whether I needed to or not. And finally, about 10 years ago, I put the clubs in the back of the garage. And I still... Uh, I probably could find them if I needed to. But I, I actually have uh, golfed in a couple tournaments. And uh, there's different kinds. There's best ball and scrambles. And, I, and I've golfed in a couple scrambles quite a few years ago. One was uh, we had a, some activities at the church. And we, uh, as part of that, we had a, a golf tournament. And there were... Uh, we, we just uh, pick teams, and so uh, foursomes, if you're not familiar with that. And so I was on a team, and, and I noticed the other three guys in my team kept carrying around these straw, straws that were really short. They wouldn't fit in anything, and I was trying, why do they keep carrying around the straws? And then I realized that uh, they had gotten the short straws, and they were on my team. I also, believe it or not, golfed in a, in a little more serious tournament here in the Helena area, and, uh, and it was uh, three guys from the church here that were part of this. I can't even remember what it was for. It was like Big Brothers or something. I can't remember what it was for. And uh, so they said, hey, John, we, we need you. Would you like to come and golf with us at this tournament? And I was like, Sure. A beautiful, warm spring day, we figured, so that would be great, get out there in the warmth. And, and I'm trying to figure out, why did they ask me to golf with them? I don't know, maybe their fourth person on their team got some contagious disease and was in the hospital, or, or maybe that uh, they just weren't that concerned about how they would do, and so they decided to... Uh, to have me go because the prizes weren't very valuable or something. I don't know what it was, but for some reason they chose me to be the fourth in their golf foursome. 
Now, if you're not familiar with golf, uh, what happens in a scramble is everybody hits the shot and then you go to the best shot to, and everybody hits from there for the next shot. So here's what would happen through the 18 holes of this golf course. We'd sit there and, and we'd all hit and then I would pick up my ball and go quite a ways ahead or towards the center of the fairway to one of the other guys that really knew what he was doing and he and then we'd all put our shot there and then I'd hit mine and I'd go off into the weeds or the next to the pond and then I'd bring it back to where they had hit it and and so this went on but there was one serious issue see you pick the best one but they had a few extra rules one was that Everybody had to have a tee shot that was used, at least one out of 18. And these guys were really gracious, and we were good friends. They, I mean, we had a good time, but as we went through hole after hole after hole, and we had not used one of my tee shots yet, I began to worry. And, and they'd give me some tips, some advice. A couple of them were pretty good golfers, golfed regularly. And, and so they were giving me some advice, hoping and praying that by pure accident, one of my tee shots would be decent. Finally, about hole 16 or 17, we said, well, let's use John's. And so everybody brought their ball back to where mine was, and we hit from there. We didn't win any prizes. We did have a good time, but you know what? My golfing pictures our sanctification. In simple terms, sanctification is this. Sanctification is to make or declare something holy. Now, there are two aspects of sanctification. The first is called positional sanctification. This occurs when we are declared righteous or declared holy by God. As Jezer shared last week in Colossians 3, the first four verses, in verse 3 it says this, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's the aorist tense, it's a past point in time, one point, and it's covered. We are dead. Our sins are wiped out because of what Jesus Christ did. We are positionally sanctified. God has done all the work. We're declared righteous because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And, and when we accept that forgiveness, we are declared holy, declared righteous. In that golf scramble, all of my horrific shots were not counted. Instead, I could move my ball to the place of one of the good shots. Jesus Christ has done all the work. Our bad shots are wiped out. And his perfect sacrifice covers it all. And so we saw last week, as Jezza reminded us, we're to, to look to heavenly things. We're to recognize that, that God is in control and we are to be focused on what is truly most important. But here in verses 5 and following, we see a second aspect of sanctification. It's called practical sanctification. 
Practical sanctification occurs as I allow the Holy Spirit to work in my life in order for me to be more like Jesus Christ. Now, as we continued to play in this tournament, these guys that were actually pretty good, they, they uh, knew what they were doing and they, they would give me tips, hoping that by some miraculous way I would improve and become a value to the team. Didn't happen, but uh, we see that as we grow in Christ, as we become more like Jesus Christ, we can be used by him to impact our world. And so we saw in verse 3 of, of chapter 3 that, that we have died. Our sin is wiped out and we're, our life is hidden with Christ in God. Now in verse 5 it says that we are to put to death the ungodly habits of sin, that we're to become more like Christ. And so in verses 5 through 9 we find... Uh, Two lists of some of the things that we're to get rid of, we're to put off, we're to kill these habits in order for us to be more like Christ. And so we see two lists in these verses. The first list is described in verses 5 through 7, and that's the list of uncontrolled desires. Verses 5 through 7 says this, Therefore, put to death your members which are in the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Now, there are several items on this list of uncontrolled desires, and, and let's briefly look at a description of each of them. The first one that he mentions there in verse 5 is fornication or sexual immorality. That's any sexual activity outside of marriage. Uncleanness, focusing on our thought life, and it's an impure thought life. And then three and four, there are very, very similar passion and evil desire that were driven by lust. And then the fifth one is covetousness, that driving desire to have more. Now, you look at the first ones, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil, desire. They, they seem to fit together, but then that fifth one, covetousness, doesn't seem to fit with the others in the list. However, as we look deeper, we see that, that covetousness is the root from which all the others grow. William Barclay, the theologian writing about covetousness, said this, Covetousness is therefore a sin with a very wide range. If it is the desire for money, it leads to theft. If it is the desire for prestige, it leads to evil ambition. If it's the desire for power, it leads to sadistic tyranny or tyranny. If it is the desire for a person, it leads to sexual sin. So we see this covetousness is the foundation of all of these other uncontrolled desires. Greed is another word that we can translate from this Greek word, greed or covetousness. And then Paul goes on to say that this covetousness or this greed is, is a form of idolatry. And we have to ask ourselves this question, why is it a form of idolatry? 
Well, covetousness or greed is placing my wants over God's will. When I place my desires over God's desires, I am worshiping myself rather than worshiping God. And so Paul is saying this list of uncontrolled desires with the root of greed needs to be wiped out in our life. And he shares two reasons in verses 6 and 7, two reasons that we're to put them to death. First is the judgment of God. Because of his holiness, God must punish sin. All morning we've been singing about the holiness of God. And a holy God can't stand sin. The cross, the work of Jesus Christ, allows God's mercy to work while keeping his holiness. But even as his followers, there are still consequences to the sin in our lives. And we're challenged to be more like Jesus Christ. The judgment of God should remind us to kill, to put off these uncontrolled desires. And then in verse 7, we see that, that these desires are part of the old life. We're to have a new name, we have a new family, we have a new home. We're no longer slaves to sin. And so we should live like children of God. We should be more like Jesus Christ. And so we're to put off these uncontrolled desires. Well, we see a, a second list in verses 8 and 9, and this is a list of those things that are involved in improper hostility. Verses 8 and 9 says this, But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. So just like the first list, let's, let's briefly describe each of the terms on this list. The first one that Paul mentions is that of anger. Anger is a deep, smoldering, resentful bitterness. Anger is our response to perceived evil. I think someone has done something wrong to me. I become angry. Now you say, but John, just a minute here. The Bible talks about how we can be angry and not sin. Well, there are cases of anger that aren't sin. Anger at something that goes against God and His Word is a righteous anger. Or anger when, when someone has been mistreated can be a righteous anger. Now, we still have to respond properly. But those are times of righteous anger. But 99% but of the time that we're anger, angry, it's a sinful angry, anger. Usually what happens is I feel I've been mistreated or uh, treated unfairly. And so I perceive that mistreatment, I perceive that evil toward me and I become angry, this deep, smoldering, resentful bitterness. Paul says, put it off. Kill it. The second is wrath. 
Wrath is a sudden outburst. Anger and wrath go together. Anger is that smoldering, resentful bitterness. Wrath is when we blow up. And, it, and it's interesting, sometimes we almost look at this as a badge of, ang, of, of, a badge of we're, we're pretty good. You know, don't make me angry. We think we're the Incredible Hulk, right? We look at ourselves in the mirror and say, yeah, I can see a little bit of resemblance. But then we say, don't make me angry. You won't like me when I'm angry. That sudden outburst. Paul says, put it off. The third is malice. Malice is wishing ill will towards someone else. The idea of being bent on doing evil. Evil toward that person. Uh, a, a picture of malice in the Bible is found in the Old Testament book of Esther in the life of a man named Haman. If you're not familiar with the story, uh, Esther and Mordecai were Jews that lived there in, in a foreign country. Their, their country had been wiped out by the Medes and the Persians, actually originally the Babylonians, and then the Medes and the Persians became the world power. And so they were living there, and, and Esther was chosen as the queen. But there was, there was another storyline running through here, and this was the, the struggle between Haman, who was a very powerful leader, and Mordecai. Mordecai, a, a Jew, who was the uncle of Esther. And, and Haman, everybody, because of his power, because of his position, everybody would, would show reverence toward him. In fact, they would bow down, and in many ways we would call it worship him. Except Mordecai, who was a, a follower of God, who knew that there, were, there was no one else to worship except God himself. And so Mordecai wouldn't be like the others and, and wouldn't worship or give reverence to this man Haman, and it drove Haman to malice. And so he thought, what can I do to hurt Mordecai? I don't want to just kill him, I want to make it good. And so he decided to build a gallows 75 feet high to, to hang Mordecai on. But not only would Mordecai die, but then also to go after Mordecai's people, the Jews, and wipe them out. And what led Haman to this horrendous, pure evil plot? Malice. Now, the story is sort of interesting. Haman didn't have a clue that Esther was a Jew. And so the Jews, Esther went to the king, and the king made another decree that the Jews could defend themselves. And so when that day came that all the Jews were to be slaughtered, they could defend themselves, and they were protected by God. But, but also Mordecai was not sentenced to the gallows, and Haman ended up being hung on the, those gallows that he had built in his malice for Mordecai. Malice. I wish 
ill will towards someone else. They got the position and I didn't get it. So I want them to be miserable and whatever I can do to hurt them will be great. Malice. God says, put it off. Another is blasphemy, that's speech that slanders or tears others down. We talk about blasphemy toward God, but also we have slander when we attempt to tear down other people. And then filthy language. Filthy language is crude or derogatory speech, intending to hurt someone. There's really two aspects or two parts to this term that we translate filthy language. It's crude language, but it also can be language that's used to hurt others. That second description, hurting others, is more evident daily in our culture. The inception of social media, we become pros at hurting others in our speech. We can say something online to to hurt them, to destroy them. And Paul says, put it off, kill it. And then we see a, a final one here, and that's lie or lying. Lie is the intent to deceive for the purpose of personal gain. We often consider, though, lying is a minor sin, isn't it? We talk about a, a white lie, or, or maybe we just fudge the truth a little bit. I mean, you know, and, and we can use this illustration because taxes are done now, but you just sort of, yeah, you just didn't quite put down everything. It's all right. Our government misuses the money anyway, so why should I give it to them? And, and we make excuses for our lying. But God looks at lying a lot differently than we may look at it. God takes lying very seriously. When we lie, we imitate Satan. Satan is known as the father of lies. You see Satan throughout Scripture. What does he do? He's continually deceiving others. Began with Adam and Eve in the garden. But God takes lying very seriously. Warren Wiersbe tells the story of an old preacher who was speaking on the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. The story where, where they went before the church and they, they gave a great offering and they said, we have sold a property and we've given all the proceeds to you. To the church. Look at us. They wanted the accolades of the people there. Now, when you read that story, you may mistakenly think the problem was that they didn't give it all. That wasn't the issue. They weren't required to give everything. The problem was that they gave a portion, and evidently it was a substantial portion, but they didn't give it all, but they lied in order to look good, saying they gave everything. And so Ananias and Sapphira were both killed. God took their lives right then and there. 
So Warren Wiersbe tells this story about this old preacher that was, that was sharing that story from Acts chapter 5. And, and according to the, the story, the old preacher said, If God still struck people dead for lying, where would I be? And of course, the people in the congregation started laughing a little bit. This is sort of strange. And, but then they got real quiet as he continued. The old preacher continued on, I would be right here preaching to an empty church. Now, I think he got his point across, but there was one thing that uh, he missed. He wouldn't have been preaching to an empty church because he wouldn't have been there either. We all struggle with lying, right? We all struggle with that intent to deceive for the purpose of my personal gain. Maybe I, I leave out some of the facts in order for myself to look better or for others to look worse. I lie to protect myself from the consequences of something I've done. Or I lie to make others pay for something that maybe they didn't do. Lying. We all struggle with that deception for personal gain, to look better myself, to avoid my faults, to make others look worse. So we see these two lists, a representation of sin in our life, a representation of our old character that's supposed to be done away when we follow Christ and become more like Jesus Christ. So how do we put them to death? I'm just going to share a couple things. First of all, stay away from sin. We must remove ourselves as much as possible from temptation. It's foolish to play with sin. We're, we're sort of like the little boy that, that's there by the edge of the creek and he gets as close to the edge as possible knowing that mom and dad said don't get in the water, but he'll see how close he can get. But what happens? The water has been carving away the soil underneath that top edge and pretty soon it collapses and into the water he goes. At our house, we've recently had an issue with mice. I think it's a fairly serious issue. My wife thinks it's more serious than I do. So I did come to the recognition. Uh, I, I recognize, there we go, the realization, that's the word I was trying to say. I came to the realization that, that I should take it seriously too. But, but we have a cat. So our cat is supposed to help us with this situation. And so I remember one day when, when one of the mice was in the house and I saw the cat and the mouse. And what was the cat doing? Killing it? Oh, no. The cat was playing with the mouse. Now, the cat thought it was in control of the situation, but, but pretty soon the mouse got away and the mouse was still there. But that's what it's like with us in sin. You say, I'll, I'll play with it a little bit, but I'll be okay. No. 
Stay away from sin. And when temptation comes, we need to take on the strategy of Joseph in the Old Testament. Run. But a second thing we need to do, not only stay away from sin, is we need to first and foremost depend upon God. John 15, 4, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This battle that we face with sin always comes back to the question of surrender. Am I surrendering my life to God? Am I allowing the Holy Spirit to work in me in order to produce godly character in my life and to weed out the wicked attitudes and actions that I need to get rid of from my old life? Am I depending on God? We also can depend on God as we seek out godly people around us to strengthen us, to provide accountability in our lives. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says this, Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Have those godly influences around you that, that will encourage you to do right and will challenge you when you're doing wrong. But that all comes from that foundation of depending upon God and allowing His Holy Spirit to work in my life. And as I allow that Holy Spirit to control me, my life will begin to be filled with what we call the fruit of the Spirit. Paul wrote about that. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. But it's interesting, we're probably familiar with that part, but the verses right before it, before Paul lists the, the fruit of the Spirit, the verses right before it talk about the fruit of wickedness that we're to get rid of. And that can only happen, not only the putting on, but the putting off, both of them, can only happen when we depend on God. Now, if you watched at the beginning, as you looked on the screen at the beginning, as we read verses 5 through 9, verse 9 ends with a comma. It's not the end of the section. And what we've done is we're dividing this into two parts. If we didn't divide it into two parts, we'd be here till about 11 o'clock and second service would be angry. You'd all be happy, right? But second service would be angry. So we're going to stop there, but, but I'm going to give you a little teaser because this beautiful sweater is going to help us connect next week from this week. So you need to be here next week. You'll see the story of the sweater as a reminder of what God wants us to do. And we see here we're to put off, we're to kill these attitudes, these uncontrolled desires and these attitudes of anger and hostility toward others. It's a daily struggle. But we must depend on God. C.S. Lewis reminds us of the battle that we're in in the final words of his book, Mere Christianity, and he says this, Submit to death, death to your ambitions and favorite wishes every day. 
and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. It's a battle. As we pray, I want you to silently go before God. Those areas of your life that you're struggling with. Those attitudes and actions from your life without Christ that are still rearing their ugly heads. And ask God to give you strength this week as you, depending upon God and steering clear of that temptation as much as you can to say, God, I want to honor you and what I'm getting rid of, what I'm killing in my life. Those bad, evil thoughts and actions. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you and as we each consider in our own lives those attitudes and actions that we're battling, Lord, help us to glorify you in our actions. Help us to put off, to kill those sins that we battle with each and every day. Help us to depend on you, not on our own strength, but on your strength. Lord, help us to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and lives in order that we can be more like Jesus Christ. And we can live more like the name, the family to which we belong if we've put our faith and trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.